You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. All right, so somewhat picking up in the same general area in which we left off. So they, they asked me just to talk about improving personal productivity and personal per- performance. And it probably won't surprise many of you, I get asked about it a lot. We've done trainings on it. There is a book. I'm right now redoing the time management book, updating the time management book. So this is an, a topic area clients have a lot of interest in. Many of my clients who come to me do not believe I tell them the truth about how I operate. So you can see they go snooping around, and I've invented reasons, even though I can go all day without using a bathroom, I've invented reasons to give them an opportunity to snoop. So they're, you know, roaming around the office trying to find the internet connection and uh, 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 trying to see if we have Wi-Fi, which we don't, and uh, 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 trying to find a window, and there isn't one. And uh, so they, they really don't believe a lot of what I tell them. But, but when tasked with this, I tried to think up something to talk to you about that is a little bit different than what you might find in the existing resources uh, about productivity. And so there's two things we're going to do tonight. They're both tied to books uh, that are important to me. Um, and the first one uh, is tied to Think and Grow Rich, which I know you've all read. You may have lost track. It is its 80th anniversary. So this book stays alive in the marketplace year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, with no advertising and no marketing because people who, uh, who find benefit from it tell other people. Um, I find that of all of Napoleon Hill's principles that are in Think and Grow Rich, there's one that hardly anybody likes, um, uh, but I do. And so one of the two areas of productivity improvement we'll talk about tonight has to do with that principle from Think and Grow Rich, which is called accurate thinking. And what I would say to you is that there is a direct relationship between maximum productivity and accurate thought, Um, a a realistic, pragmatic approach to the way things work. Um, and, And sort of to give you a little insight into what accurate thinking isn't, or what inaccurate thinking is. Um, So at the last uh, wedding reception that I couldn't get out of um, attending, um, I don't really like attending funerals either, but wedding receptions bother me. So at the last wedding reception I couldn't get out of, um, the um, a, a person stood up and insisted on reciting a poem Uh, titled Happy Marriage. And it reminded me, for those of you that know the story of Joel Weldon's Success Comes in Cans label, because there was a teaspoon of, you know, sentiment and a tablespoon of romance and a fortune, you know, this, this retchingly, you know, sweet description of this recipe. And uh, look, I've been married a long time, depending on how you count. Um, uh, uh, a long time or an even longer time. But, but 
enough time that my recipe is quite different. You know, like there's a Costco-sized drum of, you've got to be shitting me. That's, that's a big ingredient in this. There's, there's, there's a five-gallon drum of, no, 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 what would you like to watch? See, now that, that, that to me is sort of how this thing really works, not the poem that they were reading at the reception. So, you know, when you, when you decide to avoid reality, um, and, and I'm going to tell you all the different ways people avoid reality, including in business, it, it gets in the way of productivity. But the question is somewhat, how do we get to this point that everybody is in reality avoidance so much of the time? And I think that the entertainment industry is largely to blame. Hollywood is largely to blame. And I will call to your attention a Hollywood staple that is a complete variance from reality. It is sex in the shower. So this, this is an idea that is in a lot of movies. It's in a lot of TV shows. So you've all seen it. Some of you perhaps have tried it. <laughs> Nothing to me seems more, such a more seductive an idea than two people of vastly different heights <laughs> trying to mate inside steam so no one can see. They're slippery and they're next to a plate glass window. <laughs> this, this to me does not seem sensible, and yet Hollywood sells it to us again and again and again. One has to wonder how many um, ER visits are people with jagged pieces of glass stuck through various parts of their slippery naked bodies rushed to the ambulances, you know, as a result of this idea and then maybe life insurance collected on by one spouse or the other um, after, after the fact. So this is right up there. So Hollywood, the entertainment industry, people around us are constantly getting us to disconnect from reality, and it carries over into everything else we do. This is sort of now a passe fad, but I guess there's the third movie in the trilogy or something coming out. So most of you will remember the huge fad that erupted over Fifty Shades of Grey. And I, I was on the, uh, the 405 in L.A. And, and in traffic, bumper to bumper, but bumper to bumper traffic in L.A., for those of you from L.A., is going 50 miles an hour. It's just bumper to bumper, you know. And, and, and there's this lady in a convertible next to us who is driving with her knee on the steering wheel at 50 miles an hour in bumper-to-bumper traffic while reading Fifty Shades of Grey. This is how excited people were about this thing. And, uh, and I thought then, and I've made this point a number of times, look, he will, if you wish, blindfold you, he'll definitely gag you, and he will... And he will tie you to the bed. However, odds are he is then going in, make himself a sandwich, 
and, and watch the game in peace. So I would be prepared to be there for a while um, if, um, if I was you. So there's these, there's these sexy ideas that were sold. Instant and constant access to everything is a sexy and seductive idea that we have been sold. Pretty much everybody but me has been sold this sexy and seductive idea that, boy, it is cool to have this device in which there is an answer to anything on demand, and we are, you're totally, constantly, incessantly, uninterruptedly connected to the entire world. And if that's not enough, there's little versions of the same device that you can put in every room of your house in case you inexplicably have wandered off without the device in your hand and you need to ask a question like in the TV commercial for the Amazon Echo, the guy who's cooking, which he's cooking, and, and this is another dumb, sexy, seductive idea. And he's cooking and he asks the little device, you know, I'm out of butter, what's a substitute for butter? And the machine says, olive oil. So having these little doohickeys all around you and being constantly connected is a really seductive idea. Now, here's a couple of problems with it to come back to reality. Ed alluded to it this morning uh, in his jet fight. So imagine the outcome of the Captain Sully incident if he had needed to pull up a YouTube video on his phone about how to land the plane. Everybody would not have gotten out alive. But that's everybody's answer to everything right now. There was a group over at Disney when I was taking a group around the last time I was there, and a young couple stopped outside our little circle that I was talking to, and I heard as they walked away, he saying to her, I don't know why anybody would want to know any of that shit. If you got a question, you just ask your phone. And that's fine unless you need to like land a plane and then you really don't have time to ask your phone for the instructions. All of the research on this, and, and, and I know David will talk a little bit about it tomorrow, all the research on this is catching up to where I was on it 10 years ago. Books, studies, a week doesn't go by. Here's a, here's a very current one. So this is from April 7. Um, relying too much on your GPS. So how many of you have a GPS? Oh, come on, raise your hands nice and proud. How many use it? Sure. How many use it? You really, you really even know where you're going. But, you, but you're now so addicted to the damn thing you enter grandma's address because you prefer being told, turn right, turn left, right? How many of you do that? Come on, you enter shit where you know where you're going. I watch Carla do it. She'll put the restaurant in there we go to every week. I'm going, <laughs> really? You know, I mean, between us, she's a little older than I am. So I'm thinking maybe she's, you know, I mean, I'm trying to be nice about it. Dear, are you, when I'm not around, are you like, 
putting a shoe in the refrigerator or something? Is there, you know? Uh, no, I just like using it. How many of you use a GPS in your phone? Yeah, raise your hands, nice amount. No. Relying too much on your GPS, a new study suggests, can deactivate parts of the brain. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Okay? It didn't say can impair brain function. It didn't say can, can, can weaken the mental muscles. So it, no, no, no. It said deactivate. Okay? My observation of most people is they haven't got much room for deactivation <laughs> before we'll be feeding them the green jello, even though the neuroscientists have scanned, scanned the brains in this study of 240 people as they navigated simulations of distances, including the city of London where they lived, on their GPS. Some of them had to find their own way to certain destinations. Some of them were given turn-by-turn -turn directions. And some of them were guided there by their GPSs. Activity in the hippocampus, which is not a university for hippos. It's a thing in your brain. Activity in the hippocampus, the brain region involved in memory and spatial mapping, increased when participants navigated by themselves, decreased when they were given directions by their GPS. It also stimulated, self-navigation stimulated their prefrontal cortex, which is involved in planning and decision makings. But when participants were given GPS-like directions, brain activity in these regions switched off. This is from the Scientific American, by the way, not Cosmopolitan or the National Enquirer. Um, and so, this can, over time, end the brain's ability to navigate planning and problem solving on its own. This makes this less a romantic idea, this instant and constant ask a question, get an answer, do not do it for yourself. But we are sold this has the way to operate. So you are now the strange one. There's probably nobody in here. Is there anybody in here that doesn't own a smartphone? Anybody? One over here. I got one. I got one. Do I have two? It's just you and me, kid. Um, uh, so, you know, we're the real odd people out on this equation. And yet, it is my promise to you, 10 years maybe, give or take, the companies engaged in the smartphone industry, the computer industry, the app industry, the GPSs, all of this, they are going to be the tobacco companies of a decade ago. They are going to be talked about in exactly the same way. They are going to be looked at in exactly the same way. They are going to be in litigation in exactly the same way. And they are going to have the same problem. They knew. One piece of evidence. The four highest priced and most popular private schools in Silicon Valley, guess what they all have in common? No devices allowed in the building. Mm. Google's executives are sending their kids to a school that won't let them have a smartphone in the building. My grandkids are required to have a smartphone at the school they go to. But the people who really understand this, 
They don't want their kids using them inside the walls of a school. Next idea, sold to us as a very sexy, very seductive idea. Some version of the four-hour work week. And I quickly caveat, I know Tim, I like Tim, I understand, he really doesn't mean it. I, I, I get it, you're not to take it literally. It's a title that was found by market research, Google AdWords, to be the most appealing title. He's not the first person to play this game. Joe Carbo did it in the 1970s with the lazy man way to riches, although that's not quite as specific as the four-hour work week. So I applaud the Barnumism. I get it thoroughly, and as an observer of Barnumism, great. And one ought not lose sight of the fact that the entire time at its peak that Tim was promoting the four-hour work week, he was on the Today Show at 7 o'clock in the morning. He was on another talk show at 10 o'clock in the morning. He was doing book signings in the afternoon, doing book signings in the evening, and posting to his blog in between. I did the math. It's, I'm not, and I did it just like this. No calculator, no nothing. Hmm, hmm. This totals up to more than four hours a day, let alone a week. But the world is full of people looking for some version of this, seduced by it. I've got to make my business completely function so I don't, I don't have to be there. I don't have to do anything with it. I don't have to work on it. I promise you, I know a lot of rich people. I even know a lot of rich old people. They're all working. They're up in the morning. They're up late at night. They're working. And they're working on their businesses. And in fact, if your business, if what you do as an entrepreneur is not more fascinating to you than just about anything else, you're going to have problems with personal productivity and you're going to have problems with success. See, the people who are really successful, so Warren Buffett plays bridge. Outside of that, he's interested in money. He's up early in the morning, he's at it late at night, it's his favorite topic of conversation, and I'm sure he can't stand civilians, just like I can't stand civilians. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, like, one of the worst sentences I could hear from Carla is, I met this really nice couple, and we're going to go to dinner. Oh, no. No. How am I going to get out of this puppy? All right? Because she has met a really nice couple of civilians. That's what she's met. Like, they have, like, jobs. Or they're doctors or lawyers or school teachers or... After, I mean, after you've done weather, sports, you can't do what do you do. There is no explanation that is satisfactory to what do you do for me. I mean, think of what you have to explain that nobody has a frame of reference for. So this is painful. And I'm more interested 
in business than I am in anything that any of these people might be doing. And that is a mark of people who are extraordinarily successful at what they do. So here's the tie. What you are fascinated with most, what you are interested in most, is what you will be most productive at. So the reason a whole lot of people are constantly struggling with productivity and everything you might put under that umbrella, time management, project management, all of it, the reason they struggle so much is because they are trying to get themselves to do stuff they do not have a high level of fascination with. That's, that's the link. So in 19, mm, 2013, uh, uh, the Keepers of the Candle, the Napoleon Hill Foundation, gave me the Persistence Award which is nice, but persistence is like activity. It depends on what you are being persistent at, whether this is a virtue or a vice. And people act like it's a virtue no matter what. I shot an infomercial some years ago with a fabulous trick golfer. So he could do anything with a golf ball and a club. He can drive with a putter, putt with a driver. He can tell you he's going to bounce it off the tree over there, and it's going to go from there to the roof of that car over there, and it's going to come back, and it's going to be a hole-in-one. He could do all that stuff, as long as he wasn't playing in a tournament. Um, then he could do none of that stuff, which, hence, he was an infomercial star. But that, that's not my point. My, my, my point is, since I had him anyway, I said, how about taking a look at my golf swing? And he said, fine. And then he said, I'm blind for the rest of my life now. This is like seeing a 500-pound woman naked. This is just, he said, it'll take me years to get that golf swing out of my mind. And, and, and so I said, do you think it would improve with practice? He said, that swing, all you do if you practice that swing is you ingrain that swing, which is dangerous to yourself and others on the golf course. That, that's no joke, by the way. The last time I played golf, I knocked myself unconscious. Um, I swear. To... I... So I'm no good, and I know I'm no good, right? So again, Carla drags me out to play golf. And this is 15 years ago. I haven't been back since. They got my picture up. Um, <laughs> like at the post office, you know. Um, not allowed in a foursome is the deal. Um, so, I mean, I can putt with the best of them, but I can't drive the ball three feet. I mean, I have no distance. So I am determined not to embarrass myself this time, and I am going to hit this thing like, you know, and I mean, I hit it. And it, about this far, it never got more off, this far off the ground, but I mean, it was moving. And the next thing I know, there's two paramedic, paramedics standing over me. And so it was moving 900 miles an hour into one of them little metal signs that says golf crossing. 
and it hit that sign at 900 miles an hour, and it came back with some elevation, and it hit me right here, and it, and I mean, it flat took me out. I mean, next thing I know, there's two paramedics standing over me, and I said, what's the prognosis? And the guy says, you got the worst golf swing I've ever seen in my entire life. So, so look, persistence is not magic. It's what do we persist at, right? So when you set about to improve your productivity, your performance, you have to be sure that you are operating from a basis of reality, from a basis of fact. Let me give you a few examples where that is not the case. So I'm sitting in my conference room with a client, and part of his business involves a telephone sales rep in his office who follows up on leads. And I've been telling him for, I don't know, three years that he needs to fire this guy and because his numbers are horrible. So this time, he had added call tracker. So we could sit there in my conference room and we could see um, this guy's call activity. And in six hours, he had talked to three people. And I said, you don't have a telemarketer. I don't know what you got, but you don't have a telephone sales rep because he's not on the phone. What should I do? I said, fire him. Let me fire him. I'll, if you I'll happily get on the phone, I'll fire him for you. And he says, but if I fire him, I won't have any telemarketers. <laughs> I said, let me get this straight. I just want you to hear what you just said to me. You're, you're an adult. You're a man. You're running a $5 million a year business. You're not a complete idiot. Listen to what you just said to me. You have a guy who's not talking to anybody on the phone, but you don't want to fire him because then you won't have anybody to talk to anybody on the phone, which is not just get a goat. And then, <laughs> and then it cannot talk to people on the phone too, but it'll mow your lawn. I mean, let's do something productive, right? Well... That sort of thinking is actually how a lot of people approach their personnel issues. We had a guy in a mastermind group, took us four years, the group, to get him to fire this toxic person in his office. And his excuse was, she's the only one that knows where everything is. I'm going, well, you're not running General Motors, the whole office will fit in here. Go in there on a weekend, look around. You'll know, right? You're not an idiot. He's a lawyer. Um, <laughs> only change in this practice, firing her, revenue up 30% instantly. Why? Because she's the toxic stopgap to the flow of money. But if you don't have an accurate, realistic assessment of what's going on with the people around you, you cannot make them more productive. They cannot make you more productive. You're like stuck.
Years ago, I had a client who was the number one uh, expert in America in the supermarket and convenience store industry on employee and delivery man theft. And one of the things I learned very early that was fascinating to me is that all the supermarket owners and all the convenience store owners have what I call a secular religion about their business. It turns out every business has its own secular religion. Anybody in here from the automobile sales industry? Anybody? Okay. You actually, you're not quite as unpopular as the attorneys, but close, so you guys should sit together. And There's three or four attorneys here, and now there's a car salesman. You guys should have lunch together. So the car industry, here's their secular religion, and here's how they say it. Taint no be-backs. What that means is nobody comes back to buy a car. You either get them while they're there or you're not going to get them. All the data in their industry is the opposite. So in the, in the retail business, but particularly in grocery stores and convenience stores, all the owners believe, keyword, believe that shoplifting is their problem. So a typical grocery store operates at about a 6% margin. Their shrinkage is about 6%. So shrinkage matches owner profit, dollar for dollar. They believe this is shoplifting. Hardly any of it is shoplifting. It's all employee and delivery man theft, separately and in collusion. As I recall, there's 106 different ways that a delivery guy can steal uh, as he goes in and out of the supermarket or convenience store. I remember enough of them that I can spot it, but I don't remember all of it. Um, but they are stealing. And they are roughly taking the same net profit as are the owners, but with no overhead, no Obamacare, no leases, no insurance, no nothing. They're just taking the money. What do you think the biggest obstacle is to stopping this? The secular religion, the belief, the inaccurate thought that it's about shoplifting. If you don't change that, you can't change anything. So I find industry by industry, profession by profession, everyone I've ever gone and worked in, there's a secular religion in place that is in the way of making the businesses as productive, profitable, and successful as they possibly can be. You need to identify what these obstacles are in your own business and in your own life. So one of the things people are always fascinated about with me is that access to me is extremely limited and controlled and that everybody has their, my business is different, we can't do it that way, we have to be immediately available, et cetera, et cetera. Nine out of 10 times, this too is nothing but a built-up belief system. Because you can name the business that I can find you somebody who was a skeptic at first, but has basically adopted my entire modus operandi for their business, and not only has it hurt them, it has helped them. And if there's one, there can be a hundred, there can be a thousand, so some years ago, uh, Craig Proctor, so you'll know the name, 
He was still not, he was not just coaching. He had a thriving real estate practice in Toronto at the time. And he said to me on one of our consulting days, he said, something is rather abruptly changed in the business that's not good for us. He said, because I'm famous in Toronto and I'm known as the number one guy and I sell more houses than any 20 of them added together and everybody kind of knows it, we get a lot of gimmies, meaning people call up and say, we want Craig to list and sell our house. And then they send a gopher out to fill out the contracts and off they go. He said, so that's how it used to work. Almost overnight, which of course is not true, but it's his perception. Almost overnight, this has changed. Now they call up and say, we'd like to talk to Craig Proctor about listing and selling our house. And then if they're asked, are you going to talk to other agents? They say, oh, absolutely. We're interviewing five agents. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and then when it's all over, we're going to pick one. And we'd like Craig to be one of the five. He said, so now here's what this looks like. If I go, or if I send one of my guys, and they go out on Tuesday, and they meet with Harry and Marge, and they do the dog and pony show and the presentation, and Harry and Marge say, fine, we'll call you after we interview these other people. And two nights later, a real estate agent goes out and visits with him who hasn't sold a house in two years, but she's got pictures on her phone of a poodle, and the people who want to list the house have poodles. She gets the listing. He said, this is unacceptable. Now, the first good thing here is this is unacceptable. See, most people accept all kinds of crap. And he said, this is unacceptable. How are we going to fix this? So we designed a fix. I'm going to tell you what the fix is. And then I'm going to tell you an amazing fact. So the fix was we built a great big shock and awe kind of package, home sellers information kit. And now person calls in, says, we want to talk to Craig about listing and selling our house. Are you going to be interviewing other agents? Why, yes, we are. Well, Craig doesn't do that. This is the script. Well, Craig doesn't do that. He does not participate in that process. But what we will do for you is we'll send you out the home seller information kit. And amongst everything that's in it, a real important piece is the guide to selecting a real estate agent who will get your home sold for top dollar in the shortest period of time. Be sure to get that and use that when you interview all the other agents you're going to interview. If and when you are ready to have Craig list and sell your house, call us back. Bye. Now, it works, by the way, magically. A bunch of people call back an hour later, two hours later, and they say, we're sorry. And, we, and we've decided not to interview any other agents. And will you please send somebody out with a contract so Craig will list to sell our house. And please don't tell them because we, we don't, right. And then a bunch of others get the kit and they call and they say we're not going to interview anybody. And then a bunch of them get the kit and they do interview people. But of course the whole thing is structured so nobody can beat the <laughs> matrix except him. So some of them call back. And, and so it works magically. Now, here's the amazing fact. This entire system is then made available to everybody, all the other agents in Craig's coaching program. Would you like to know how many used it out of, let's say, 100? I got seven over here. Any, 
Anybody want to go lower than seven? Huh? Three. Three. That's three percent for those of you that went to public school. So it's right between the one percent and the five percent, dead on. Even with complete empirical evidence of its efficacy. Why would so many not follow the example? Because it conflicts with their pre-existing secular religion belief system about their business. That's why. So facts are blocked by beliefs. Therefore, those agents could not be made more productive no matter what you taught them, what you provided them with, what you did for them, because their inaccurate thinking stood in the way. So if you jump to technique, so people want to know all the time from me, how do you get so much more done than everybody else gets done? Well, there's some keys to that. One is you work in a zero interruption environment. Nobody talks to you. Nobody emails you. You don't look at anything. You just go to work. And they go, well, I can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? And then all their reasons are belief system stuff. They're not any real reasons. I promise you, you can do it tomorrow. It's real simple. Throw all your devices out in the garage, lock the door, lock the other doors of your house, pull all the blinds down, and find a room to lock yourself into with nothing but your work. Done. That's all you needed to know. Will anybody do it? No, because it conflicts with their belief system. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk to you about in this area of how to substantially increase your personal productivity. It is identify all the inaccurate thinking, the secular religion, the belief system stuff that stands in the way of being more productive and challenge it. Second thing I want to talk about, a long time ago, peer and friend of mine, guy's name's Jim Newman, he wrote a book called Release Your Breaks, much more recent than the Think and Grow Rich, but still probably 40 years old. And unlike Think and Grow Rich, it has not been treated as well as a legacy item. You probably can't find it. Uh, I'm quite confident it's out of print. Uh, you might find one at a thing I know hardly anybody knows exists anymore. It's called a library. You can actually go down there and borrow a book for free. Um, uh, and you might find one there, you might find one at a garage sale, but you're, otherwise you're probably going to have trouble finding it. But, but I'm going to summarize it for you, so you don't need it. Jim's idea of release your brakes ties directly to what we were just talking about. So his analogy was that most people are heading down the road trying to be as productive and successful as they possibly can with one foot on the gas and the other foot on the brake, riding the brake. I know none of you drive this way, but I'll bet you have somebody you occasionally ride with who drives this way. Or watch on the road. When you see a car moving and the brake lights are on at the same time, this is this person. 
you see a lot of it in Florida. So in Florida, if you get out of here at all and you move around, you're gonna, first of all, you're going to see what looks to you like a driverless Google car <laughs> because the person behind a wheel is really old, I mean really old, and they have shrunk to about three foot high, and they don't stick up above, so at best, all you see is two gnarled little hands on the wheel, but there's nothing else there. And, and that will scare you unless you believe in driverless cars, and then you'll be reassured. But the other thing you'll see is you'll see a lot of this. You'll see a car in front of you going 30 miles an hour, and the brake lights are on. That's the same little old lady who has got one foot riding the brake at the same time she has got a foot on the gas pedal. And Jim's theory is this is really how people drive themselves and their businesses. And you can do as much for yourself by getting the foot off the brake as you can by putting the foot more on the gas. So I've identified over time in clients and others I work with the foot on the brake. And I thought the other thing I would do tonight is take you through the list of the foot on the brake. So one is resources. It is true that legitimately some people are resource limited in what they are trying to do. And the three best answers to that, the one everybody thinks of is other people's money. The answer to me not having money is if I just got a lot of other people to give me money, then everything would be terrific. We have a guy, a few of the people in the room are aware of him. Um, I, won't, I won't put him in context or place for you, um, but his, his, his belief about how he can't do what he wants to do and get to the next level, he's already quite successful, is that he needs $50 million in order to do it. And so he is roaming around asking everybody, for the one thing he can do to suddenly make $50 million materialize. Um, I don't know that one thing. If I did, I certainly wouldn't be talking to him. Um, uh, 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 but, uh, and I don't think really anybody else knows either. So to him, the answer is other people's money. In my experience and in most, with most businesses, other people's resources and other people's customers have been much more accessible much more usable, and generally don't create debt, uh, has a way to circumvent resources. Because in most businesses, what do you need money for mostly? Get customers. So if you can somehow get customers without the money, that problem is solved. Then there's money limits internally within the business. The money math of the business itself doesn't actually work. And that's a big foot on the brake. I've had five conversations while I've been here, three with off and on again, ongoing clients, two with people I didn't know before I was here. And all five of these conversations center around this foot on the brake. We can't do this, that, and the other thing. We can't use this ad media or that media or that ad media because we can't afford to spend more than $22.12 to get a lead. Okay? That's an internal money limit. 
which they have imposed upon themselves. It only exists because they've decided that they can only afford $22 to get a lead. And all of their math has been structured internally to conform to that idea. I was guesting at a mastermind meeting two years ago, and usually I, I'm relatively antisocial. Um, it's not that I don't like people, it's just that generally I find people don't like me. Um, but, uh, but, but the end result is the same. And so usually I, when I'm guesting at some, I mean, I fulfill my responsibility, but I don't really make a point of mingling on the breaks and so forth. But, so at a mastermind, we were going around a room and with each one, what, their max, what they considered to be their maximum allowable meaning what's the most you will spend to get a lead, what's the most you will spend to get a customer, to make a sale. And to the second question, the guy said, he said, I'm not exactly sure what my maximum allowable is for a lead. There's some variables and source and how they convert and so forth. He said, but my maximum allowable to make a sale is $26,000. I glued myself to this guy on brakes like I was made of Velcro. If ever there's a client on the planet I want, it's this guy. 26 grand to make a sale. I don't care what we're selling. I can now do anything, right? I can send a live human being in a large mailing tube by FedEx over, I can send two. I can, I can do anything, right? This is my guy, right? But most people's answer is really much more limited. So they have all these internal money limits that they've created about their business that gets in the way. Next break. They say, this is the third most common thing I hear that almost makes me weep. My staff won't do that. So their limit, their break is lack of cooperation and or compliance from staff, associates, partners, vendors. There's a fellow here, I don't, I couldn't find him if I could, even if there weren't lights in my eyes, but he came up to me the first day and said, I want you to know I'm here despite the fact that it ended a business partnership because my partner said I absolutely could not go. And so I terminated the relationship, and here I am. And good for him, but most people don't have that kind of, that kind of personal power. So most people come to seminars, by the way, if you have staff. So most people come to seminars, and they go back now with their notes. And they gather their team around and say, here's the great ideas I got. Here's what we're going to do. And the team does one of two, their reactions are one of two things. One is the reaction Trump's getting in Washington. The hell we are, all right? We ain't doing nothing. Or, oh yeah, that's a great idea, we'll do that. And then 
they, as soon as you walk away, they say he's been to another seminar. <laughs> and just like all the others, if we just slow this down, he'll run out of gas, he'll forget about it, we just got to wait him out, and it'll all go away, and we can continue as it is. This is a big break on people making any progress with anything they're trying to do. Convention, big break. I don't mean the convention you go to. I mean the conventions, the norms, the rules, the way things are done around here. There's how most people behave in business. They behave like a kid who transfers from one junior high school to the other. So kids in Texas and the family moves to Boston. That kid gives up his cowboy boots in about 48 hours. Comes home and says, I gotta have shoes with laces. People uproot the kid from Boston, they move to Texas. About 48 hours, he says, I gotta have some cowboy boots. Or I'm gonna be coming home every day with a black eye. And they go get him cowboy boots. Now, adults get into business, they do the same crap. Like junior high kids. They get into the business, and they look around at how everybody else does things, and then they copy the way it's done around here. Which understand the way it's done around here is always poor in outcome. That's why it's 1%, 4% at the bottom, all the way down to about 40%. The economic pyramid hadn't changed since 1954 when they started to track Social Security statistics. Hasn't changed. All this technology you guys got, all this instant access to every piece of information in the world you would ever want to know. All, you don't got to go to the library. It's in your phone. It's in your hand. It's in your pocket. Pretty soon, um, um, they're going to just embed it. Whoever was talking about that the other day, you won't need a thing. You, you, you'll just need to have a glimmer of a thought, and Siri will respond. All of that hadn't changed nothing in terms of money. If anything, it's made it a little worse in the middle. So the only thing that makes any sense, if you want a lot more success, is you violate every way it's done around here. Every way. So whatever environment you find yourself in, an industry, a profession, a trade, a kind of business, the one thing you can be sure of, the popular way is the poor way. Has always been, always will be. If everybody's telling you this is the way to do it, oh, you got to have a website with 86 tabs on it so they can pick what they want and go any which way. If everybody's telling you that and you don't know shit about web websites, you know one thing, no tabs. That's, you, don't, you don't need to know anything else. You know that. If everybody's telling you, you need, no video can be longer than three minutes and four seconds, and you don't know shit about video, you just got one extremely valuable piece of information. It can't be 3.4. You don't know what it ought to be, but you damn sure know it can't be 3.4. So whatever everybody's telling you, that's a convention that is a break 
And the more people copy it, the worse it is. Time limits. Leverage eliminates time limits. Yeah, we all only have the same 24 hours in a day. It's one of the great cliches of all time, and it is a false cliche. We do all have the same 24 hours that everybody else does in a day, but people use them very differently, and they either get leverage from them or they don't. So the time limit is a break on your productivity only if you create no leverage. Beliefs, we talked about that, and last is criticism, big break. So people stop doing things because they are criticized for them. So, last thing, what do all these have in common? Car insurance, seat belts, condoms, padlocks, concealed, good for you, who said it? Good for you, you win the prize. We spare no expense. Um, what all these have in common is what he just said, protection, and they have a second thing in common. Very little resistance to using them. Most people are perfectly okay with most of these things. They don't really argue the validity of them. Anybody in here driving around with no car insurance? Raise your hand, nice and proud. Hey, we built the wall. Um, so pretty much everybody gets car insurance. What do almost every one of you say to your kid when he's old enough to drive? Not until you have insurance. If you're smart, you say not until you've made enough money to buy your own insurance, but that's, hey, seatbelts. How many in here do not wear seatbelts in your vehicle? Raise your hand. You learn more by looking around at everybody else than you do to me. So I'm alone in this category too. All right? I do not want to die in two parts. But everybody else has accepted the idea that you should wear seatbelts. How many of you, by the way, have done independent research to determine whether or not it actually does benefit you to wear a seatbelt? How many of you have checked that at all? Or you've just accepted it, haven't you? But you've accepted it. How many of you have a lock on something? House, office, safety deposit box, chastity belt? <laughs> I heard you clink. Uh, so don't. <laughs> How many of you have a passcode? How many of you have a passcode that is either your birth date or the year you graduated from school or the last four digits of your social security number or Hillary Clinton's moron associate, what's-his-face, whose passcode was passcode for his Gmail account. But we've all accepted, right, that we should have. So this is all pretty much acceptable. Some people may be a little controversy over carrying a gun, some people over the St. Christopher Medal. 
Some people overbuild the wall. But for the most part, we have accepted exactly what you said, that we have to protect ourselves and our assets from a variety of bad things happening to them, notably including theft. We are like all about protection. It's a big industry. There was a time, so people didn't have smoke detectors. You had to sell them a smoke detector. Four smoke detectors for a house was an $800 sale, and it took a salesman to make it. Everybody accepts now you should have smoke detectors. You should have them. Right? So we protect fiercely and spend money and accept the idea of protecting everything but our productivity. That there's massive resistance to protecting. You want me to do what? You want me to keep people out? So I ask you, two neighbors. One drops by uninvited. He drops by unannounced, randomly to borrow things, yak with you about sports, or he drops by virtually by tweeting and texting you 26 times a day, emailing you, sending you a link to a YouTube video, summoning you to a Facebook Live. You have a second neighbor who drops by uninvited, comes in, ties you up, rapes your spouse or your pet, steals your money, craps on your carpet, leaves and comes back and does it every three days. Do you treat these two neighbors in an identical fashion? No, you wouldn't, but you should. Because what's actually happening in the two scenarios is the same. You are being horribly abused disrespected, disdained, and for the most part, not having any fun as a result of the process. So how you look at your productivity, is it something that deserves being protected or is it not, has a great deal to do with whether or not you will be able to protect it. How many of you feel, where's my little picture? A little Disney duck. How many of you feel like this? Eh, once a week. Just overwhelmed, can't get everything done. Things have spiraled out of control. Once a week. Twice a week. Every day. A lot of business people every day. Right? I talk about the conspiracy against your productivity. It's real. The world around you is not trying to accomplish anything. Therefore, they are in a conspiracy, mostly unwittingly, to prevent you from accomplishing anything, too, 
if for no other reason than it makes them look bad. In my first and only job that I mentioned this morning, four months into the job, the national sales manager said, we would like you to start taking Fridays off. I said, why would you like me to take Fridays off? He said, because you're making the other sales reps look bad. So we have to slow you down. And the easiest way to do that would be to take Fridays off. Well, this, by the way, this is what goes on in an organization. It's what, look, in a sales organization, it's why. If there's 100 of them, there's one superstar, there's four that are really good, and it starts to disintegrate from there. And what do the rest of them try and do? They try and pull down the four and the one. If you hire a new salesperson, you must quarantine them from the ones you've already got. If you have one assistant and you decide to get two, you can't let them be in the same building. Why? Because the one will cannibalize and kill and eat the other one to prevent them from being more productive. So there is a conspiracy. It's real. On the other hand, it is a symptom. So the little stressed duck, if that's how you feel, understand that that is a symptom being felt of a different disease and situation, just like any other symptom. So what is the disease and the situation? The disease is not being willing to protect your product it is being willing to let it be sacrificed, surrendered, sabotaged, and stolen. And then you feel these symptoms as a result of it. How many of you have had a house burglarized? You're a home you live in, burglarized. Right. Fortunately, not many of you. Statistically, the rest of you now have something to look forward to. Um, maybe like right now while you're away. Um, nice, huh? Hmm. Um, well, as he said, you're not here to sleep. Um, so first of all, you should know men feel differently about this than do women. For the most part, I'm generalizing, but it has a different emotional meaning to women than it does to guys. Guys are basically pissed off about it. Uh, women have a different reaction to it. But everybody has a reaction to it. Nobody doesn't have a reaction. And the reaction is how they feel about it, not what it is. So if only a few things were taken, then they can easily be replaced. And there was no vandalism yet you still feel strongly about it. You understand it's all about the feeling. It's not about the reality. They're gone. The cops have come. Hardly anything was taken. What was taken, we can easily go down to Costco tomorrow and replace. They didn't break anything. They didn't vandalize anything. And yet, there will be strong feelings about it. The same thing is true about your productivity being stolen, sabotaged, etc., you feel a certain way about it. Now the question is, what will you do about it?
So in the shadow of Disney, I want to tell you about Walt's worst bullshit. And I understand I'm a Walt Disney fan to the max. But like the rest of us, Walt was a salesman first. And there are certain things that you say to make a sale that you may not necessarily totally believe, or on the flip side, you omit things that will get in the way of the sale. So Disney has a repetitive, reoccurring, initially created by Walt, piece of happy talk that they repeat over and over and over again because people like it. Right? Disney's happy talk is wishing on a star. Pinocchio, I wish I may, I wish I might, have the wish, I wish tonight. More currently, Aladdin, that's wish big. Now, it's in pretty much every Disney story that wishes matter. That wishing is magic. It's bad metaphysics that we can wish into existence behavior of certain people or financial results or business results, the power of wishing. It's Disney's worst bullshit. But Walt himself was more of a truth teller. So the, the definitive Walt quote about this is this. this is it. I'm using a visualizer designed with a post right where you want to slide the pages instead of over here. Brilliant engineering. But speaking of engineering, I'll bet you have something I don't have in my big giant suite in this hotel. And apparently I'm the first person in the world to ever point out to them this engineering failure because they have been mesmerized, Vicky can tell you, with this discussion. I've got notes from them thanking me for calling it to their attention. I have a suite the size of this. You can land a plane in it. And there's empty space everywhere. You know what I don't have? A drawer. Not one, I swear to God. I've told two different people, I'll pay you 100 grand if you can find a drawer. And they both looked earnestly. There's not a drawer. Not in, not in a nightstand, not in a dresser, not anywhere. No drawers. Now, I don't care. I'm a guy and I'm by myself. So you just plop the underwear over here. You plop the socks over here. What do we care, right? Carla would be aggravated. I'll bet most women would. They don't like all their stuff just out. They like their stuff put away, usually in like an orderly manner, right? These things go in this drawer. These things go in this drawer. Okay? I've watched it with more than one of the female gender get into a room and they put their stuff in places. There are no places in this room. It's astounding. I mean, I've never been in a hotel room. Every time I think I've seen everything. No, no, you haven't. So they have managed a feat of engineering. So 
So Walt's thing about, about wishing, here's his definitive statement. He used the word dreams, but you can use the word, guys, can you, thank you. Dreams, wishes, all dreams can come true, but there's a caveat statement that isn't in all the movies. If we have the courage to pursue them. Key word, courage. Like the brass balls, the cojones. The, see, this statement is a sanitized version of this statement, which is mine. You don't have to be an asshole, but you do have to be okay being thought of as one. All right? You have to have the courage to do things that people find objectionable in the protection and furtherance of your productivity. So every once in a while, somebody will voice complaints about my protection of my productivity as unreasonable and objectionable. I say, good. We have just identified someone I don't want to deal with at all. See, I don't care. I am totally committed to the protection of my productivity. Most people are not so committed. So here are questions to take home. I have three for you. One, what is the highest and best and most beneficial value that you bring to the table, to your business, to your venture. Most people only have three at the most. Three things that you do so well and so that you are so incredibly skilled at, that you are so effective at, and that are so valuable that no one else ought to be doing them. No one else will even come close to approximating the results that you will get. What are those? It's important to know. Two, how can your ability to focus on those and only those to the exclusion of other things be protected, strengthened, facilitated, leveraged? Three, the last one's easy to answer, but you got to teach it to everybody. What is everybody around you, what is their job one? Their job one is the answer to two. Their job one is to facilitate. So I own racehorses, as many of you, as many of you know. We never, ever, 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 ever ask a racehorse to clean its own stall. <laughs> to make its own food. To put on its own blanket to clean its own hoof, to do anything except the two values it brings to the table that are most important, being rested and racing. That's it. All that other stuff, not only wouldn't the horse be any good at doing it if he was asked to do it, but there's $8 an hour people to do that. And their entire job, one, is to facilitate the two values the horse brings to the table. Their job is to keep them in a good mood. 
rested, relaxed, ready, and when it's time, get him to the track so he can race. That's everybody else's job on. And there's a whole slew of them who have that job. The groom that takes care of the horse, the trainer that trains the horse, the veterinarian, the acupuncturist, the blacksmith, the on and on and on and on. All to facilitate the horse being rested and in a good mood and at the track when it's time to race, ready to race. So here, everybody likes secrets. Here's your productivity secret to take home. We'll end with it. Your income and your wealth goes up in direct concert with your management of the answers to those three questions. How good a job you do with these three questions will proportionately and directly determine your income and your success. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.